Hello and welcome to Wisdom and Productivity, the podcast of Dr. Efraim Martinez. I am a principal in search of wisdom and I have found productivity to be a great tool for success. Today I have the great and distinguished honor of interviewing my friend Nick Poliak, who is the superintendent of Leiden High School and he is also a co-author with my boss, Mike Lewifel and my friend PJ Caposi, over known by everyone. It is my honor to have him here. Nick Poliak, who are you? Good morning, Efrain. Thank you for having me. Um, yes, I am the superintendent at Leiden. Uh, first and foremost, I'm a husband. Uh, this will be my 23rd anniversary coming up this year with my wife, Kate, who I met in college. We have four wonderful children, three in high school, one in college. Um, but yeah, I've, I'm an educator. I've been an educator for 24 years, the last 14 of which I've been honored to be a superintendent. Um, four years down in central Illinois at Illinois Valley Central School District. And then for the last 10 years here at Leiden. So thank you for having me this morning. It's an honor. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Um, the first question I'm going to ask you is, why be a superintendent? <laughs> the superintendency is the coolest job I've ever had. It, you know, I think as you come through education, there's this fear that you're going to be moving further and further away from the students when you take on administrative roles. And that doesn't have to be the case, I found. You, know, you get to make your own schedule and priorities. And... Uh, the thing I love about the superintendency is you get to make organizational decisions that impact the trajectory of the lives of individual kids, of families, of communities. And the impact on that is, is, is not just immediate with a student, it's generational sometimes in the things you can do. And, you know, there's a great example I give, you know, I love being a classroom teacher. I love being a coach and a building administrator. Those were all fun, amazing things to do. Um, when I, when I took on the superintendency at Leiden, um, I had this conversation with the school board about, um, about community service and creating global citizens. And, um, and a lot of our students never really got out of our community, let alone out of the state or out of the country. And so, so wouldn't it be great if we had these global community service opportunities for kids? So we talked about it with the board and now annually our board puts up a quarter million dollars in the budget to support global community service from our students. So we have students in Mexico, in Peru, in Ecuador, in the Dominican Republic doing these amazing things and the students have to pay $500 to go. The board picks up the rest of it, but like that's a cool thing you can do from the superintendent's chair that you really can't do from anywhere else in the organization. Things that you can do from the superintendent's chair. I never thought about that way. Thank you so much. Like in Back to the Future, Nick, uh, if you could go back in time to yourself in any of the positions that you have held, what would you tell yourself? <laughs> um, you know, don't take yourself seriously. You know, this everything you're doing is bigger than you. Um, you're, I would tell myself one of the things is is to journal. It's something I wish I had done throughout my career. I think um, as I reflect back, I've forgotten 
more stories and more learnings and more things across my career and my life than I remember. And I wish there was a journal I had where I could flip back to, you know, the year 2005 or the year 2010 and, and remember some of those things I went through, some of those situations we handled. And I just don't have that. So I have whatever I remember. So I, that's one thing. Uh, and there's a lesson I think I've learned now that I wish I knew when I was younger. And it's that this is a personal business, right? We, we deal with individuals and humans all day long, all the emotions, all the experiences. Everybody who brings something to you, it's very, very personal for them. So um, if a, you're talking to a parent whose student has been bullied, it's very, very personal. If you're talking to a teacher who um, is, is handling a situation, it's very personal. And so I always come with that lens, but never take it personal yourself, right? It's not about you. Nobody's, none of this has anything to do with you. You know, you're in the role that you're in and you have to remember, this is the most important thing on the mind of that individual that you're working with right now. Nick, let me ask you a, a, a follow-up question. As a principal who aspires to be a superintendent, what did you learn when you became from whatever you were before you became a superintendent in your previous district? What you didn't know and what you didn't know when you started as a as a superintendent in the new district? I'm, I'm highly curious of, of how those transitions, what, what, are, what are some lessons learned for people who are trying to get there? Um, Ephraim, I'm a person who I don't like politics, right? I, I just, I've never seen myself politically, like, I've never, I've never really wanted to be that. Uh, what I've learned as I've transitioned into both superintendencies is that I, I am a politician, right? But I'm a politician in the way that I advocate for our community, that I have to mm -hmm. collaborate with the local mayor and the fire chief and the police chief and the chamber of commerce. And I need to go to Springfield and talk to legislators. I have to call my senators and representatives to say, no, don't pass that bill. This is what the effect will be on our students. Or yes, please pass this one. We need that because, and if I don't take that role on, nobody else does. Um, and so when I transition from central Illinois to where I am at Leiden now, it just amplified that. Um, now I serve seven communities instead of one. So I have seven mayors and I have four state representatives and two state senators and multiple chambers of commerce and all of the different connections and the, the political lens got way more complicated here, but still super important. And how does your life change in terms of like, what do you tell your family? Oh, um, for example. I am a teacher, I have these responsibilities, and all of a sudden you become a principal, and you have more responsibilities, and you become a superintendent, and you have, and then you become a superintendent in a bigger district. How does your life change, and what advice do you have for those people that in their personal life might have to tell their families, well, weekends might be busier than usual. What, are, what is your advice? There, there are times of the year where that's true, um, but... In my first superintendency, I followed a longtime superintendent, wonderful man, and he and his wife were empty nesters. And so they went to everything. That was their personal life. They went to every basketball game, baseball game, football game, softball game, play, musical, and they were just a fixture everywhere. When I came in, 
I tried to follow that model and I wasn't doing a good job of that. I wasn't being a good husband. I wasn't being a good father because you can't do all that. I was in a different place in my life. And so when I came to Leiden, I was very, I had a reset button. I was very clear with my board. Hey, I, you need to know that I'm a father of four little kids. And you need to know that I'm a husband. And I, those are, those roles are very important to me. So it doesn't mean I'm not going to be at events, <clears throat> but sometimes my kids are going to be with me when I'm there. Or sometimes I'm going to have to be at my kids' games because they need me to coach their teams <clears throat> and be their dad. And so the board at Leiden was very understanding of that. And so that's been a relationship we started from day one. Um, and I've really tried to adopt a mindset of stop staying, stop staying at work so late. You know, I try to leave by 4, 4.35 most days and get home for dinner. You know, I, maybe... You know, when the kids were little, you put them to bed and then you pick up some of the work stuff. But it's not fair to the other important people in our lives to let our job completely dominate us. So you got to find and strike that balance and be very, very honest with your board of education. Beautiful. Great advice, Nick. One more question. Um, obviously, relationship with the board are fundamental. Uh, what are some tips that you, that you wish someone would have told you when you began being a superintendent? <laughs> hmm. Um, let's see. <clears throat> I think, you know, we've, we've talked, we may talk more about this, this concept of the imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. Um, I talk to a lot of aspiring superintendents and many times people feel like they're not ready. They're waiting, waiting, waiting. I am not ready for this yet. I, I haven't done finance. I haven't done curriculum. I'm not ready to be a superintendent. <clears throat> it, it brings me back to when I was a first year teacher and that bell rang for the first time and these kids sat down in my room and I thought, Oh my gosh, who in the world, who in the world put me in charge of this? I'm not ready. I'm not ready. And they're going to figure it out and the parents are going to know. Um, and then you push through it, but then the, you know, fast forward, I become a superintendent. And I remember I pulled into the parking lot the first day on the job. And I was the first car in the lot and my office was inside the high school. And I looked around at the fields and the buildings and the parking lots. And I'm in charge of a budget of, I think at that point, $18 million. <clears throat> and I had that same feeling come back to me. Like, oh my gosh. I have no idea what I'm doing. Like, I'm going to go into my office and I don't know what I do all day. I don't know what time I go home. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> I think I, I would I'd go back and tell myself that that's all okay. And that's normal and that's to be expected. Um, and that everyone experiences that. You know, it, the, the important thing is what you do with it, right? You put your, put your nose down, you get to work, you build relationships, you do good things for kids, and you're never ready. Great advice. Thank you. So um, I never asked you, how come you became an educator? Well, when, when I was in eighth grade, I made the decision to go to the high school that my, um, my brothers had gone to, my parents, 
gone to my uncles. Um, but the, I was only one of two kids from my junior high that went to that high school. So when I showed up in high school, I didn't know anybody. It was a brand new <laughs> clean slate, super nervous, you know, young kid. And I was at Joliet Catholic high school and my classroom or my, my locker was right outside the door of father Ray Foster. So, uh, Father Ray ended up being my physics teacher later on, but for four years, I was right next to Father Ray. And um, he was hysterical. He was nice. He checked on me every day. He was the chaplain for the football team. Um, you know, and when I took his class, physics, maybe not the most exciting course to a lot of people, he made it fun and engaging. And he brought this passion to the classroom. And I just... I walked away from that experience in his physics class and I just thought I would love to do that every day to just come in and, and have fun with, with kids and, and teach them something, but be in their life the way he was helping me transition into the school. He just had that really fundamental impact on my life. He passed away a few years back. Um, but I, I always hearken back to the, that was the moment that pushed me towards education. You uh, raised Catholic. Mm -hmm. How did the uh, being raised Catholic influence you today as an educator? Um, I, I think my faith and my professional work they overlap all day, every day, in terms of being a servant leader, in terms of you know lifting up others. You know that's why I love doing the aspiring superintendent work. Um, but sometimes I just have to call things a different name. You know, so when I talk to you about uh, the, the service trips, you know, I don't call them mission trips, but in my mind, they're mission trips. But in, in the world of education, they're service trips. And so it, it's, it's fundamentally woven through what I do. I just have to be careful <laughs> of, of how I vocalize things sometimes. Makes sense, makes sense. Thank you so much. So Nick, as uh, reading is such a luxury, uh, if you will have to give two books, one fiction, one nonfiction, they're your absolute favorite, which one will those they be? All right, you want one fiction and one nonfiction? And one nonfiction. Um, and why? I'll start with, oh, let's see. Um, well, nonfiction, uh, I, I love the Harry Potter books. They've been um, kind of this interesting through line of my family's life. When the books were released, <laughs> my wife and I used to order them and they would get them as soon as we could. And then one of us would read it. And then as soon as they finished, the other one would read it. And it was um, kind of a, a thing we did. And then, you know, then we have children and it becomes a book we're reading to them or reading with them. And um, when we would take vacations and drive down to Florida, we would put them in the minivan and we would listen to the Harry Potter books on CD and, and re-experience them through the lens of the kids and the family. Um, it's so much so that one of our sons became such a Harry Potter fan, we converted a closet under the stairs in our basement into his bedroom. So he actually has a, a Harry Potter bedroom under the stairs in our house. That's awesome. Um, 
So that's what I would say from that. Now, I, I, this may not qualify as nonfiction because it's a it's a leadership book, but it it was written um, in, in kind of a fictitious story. But the, I think the learnings qualify. Um, the author is James Hunter, and he wrote a book called The Servant, <clears throat> and it's about a a CEO whose life is um, overly complicated. You know, he's spending too much time at work, not enough time with his family, nothing's really working. It uh, reminds me a little bit of the story I, I told you of trying to do it all. And so he, yes. he goes away to this monastery and um, and meets people there who are guiding him. And, and it's, a, it's a really interesting book. But one of my biggest takeaways is they talk about the word love and really stress the fact that love is a verb. You know, we often talk in terms of the emotion of love, you know, I love you, or a feeling of love. Um, but my takeaway from Hunter in that book is that love is what we show in our actions. It's what we do. The things that we do, that verb, our actions every day, show our love for our students, our families, our spouse, our friends. Um, and that's, uh, that's really stuck with me over the years. Yes. Thank you so much. Who is your biggest influence? Um, so many people. You know, we, <clears throat> each one of us at any point in our life is nothing more than the collection of our experiences up to that point, right? Uh, the things we've done, the people we've interacted with, where we've been, what we've seen, what we've done. And so we're, we're this constantly changing iterative beings based on our experiences. You know, our time together today changes me to be a different person than I was when I woke up this morning. And that's, that's kind of fun and cool. And so I think back to the stages in my life. And I, I mentioned to you Father Ray and, and the, the influence he had on me and my, my professional direction. Um, when I got to college, I had this professor named Mike Schroeder at Augustana College in Rock Island. And um, Mike was so personal and so invested in each of us to be the best educators we could be. Um, and he's still, we're still in contact to this day, you know, so many years later, 24, 25 years later. And I said, like, who does that? Well, I want to be that kind of person, you know? And so I, I see how he invests in people and stays connected. And I want to maintain those connections and be that kind of person. Um, and then... When I became a superintendent, um, again, I talked about just you know, not knowing what I was doing, lack of confidence. I had a mentor back then, a guy by the name of Rich Foltz. And Rich is a retired superintendent. He was the, the you know, assistant director at IASA, the Illinois Superintendent Organization. Mm -hmm. And Rich became my mentor. And he called me weekly. He would drive down and visit me in my school district and talk to me about problems. Um, and we've become friends and colleagues. And so, you know, again, just like Father Ray, just like uh, Dr. Schroeder, Dr. Volz, that's the kind of person I want to be. And I, I believe, you know, people come into our lives for a reason. Some of them for us to look and say, I absolutely want to emulate that. Sometimes people that we say, I never want to be that for, that for other people. And so it's our job to sort and sift through those learnings and teachings from the people in our life to help shape who we are. But it's a constant process. Yes, absolutely. 
let me um, ask you for everybody tells leaders that are beginning like me and they say you should get a mentor you should get a mentor uh how does one get a mentor one and two um what are the responsibilities of this mentor right because um sometimes it's difficult to maintain relationship with someone who is consistently wants to give you advice because it can be exhausting What is your advice on how leaders should find mentors and what do they need to do to maintain that relationship where that mentor keeps giving you uh, mentoring? Well, mentorship can be giving advice, but can also be just listening and being in the person's life. You know, sometimes it's not advice that I need or needed. It was just to talk something out loud with somebody. And, and hear my and process it, not in my own head. Um, when there are professional organizations you belong to where mentorship is embedded, right? And that's how I met Dr. Volz. Um, but Rich wasn't supposed to be my mentor. They were going to assign someone to me. But during the meeting where they were explaining the mentorship, he was the one directing the meeting. I took out my computer on my lap and I emailed him and requested that he be my mentor. And he Ooh. accepted Um, and so, you know, in that particular case, I sought someone out and, uh, and again, we've become longtime friends and, and colleagues after that, but, um, sometimes it's getting involved in an organization, be it IASA for an Illinois superintendent or AASA at the national level. And there are mentorship opportunities that come with those programs. Uh, but You know, for you, Efrain, you know, a mentor might be another principal in the district who's been doing it longer. It might be somebody in the district next door. Um, you know, when you become a superintendent, it might become the superintendent in the district next door or, or down the street. Um, sometimes it, you don't even know where they're going to come from. But if you maintain a focus on connecting with others and building relationships, those things are going to come. And then the funny thing that's going to happen is you're going to become the mentor for others, maybe without even realizing it. People are going to start mm -hmm. calling you for advice or help, and you're going to say, whoa, what just happened? Uh, but that's the natural progression of things. Beautiful. Thank you. So let's go back to the imposter syndrome question. So you mentioned you show up to your campus and you see all of this, and this is what I'm imagining. What advice do you have to address? This real thing that we get that we feel that we are not good enough or how I can't believe I got here, how I'm going to do this. What are some advices on how to address that? Yeah, I mentioned that that first day on the superintendency, um, sitting in my car. And the, the reality of that situation was I, when I became a superintendent down at IVC, I was the youngest member of the administrative team. And I was the only new one. So everyone there had these existing relationships. I stepped in and I was super self-conscious about my age. Um, what I've learned, I think, about the imposter syndrome over the years is that it's actually a good thing. It's a sign of humility that you don't think you're better than, you don't think you've arrived. You know, if you didn't have that feeling, what does that say about you? So... Um, if you can accept that and then lean into it and say, you know what? I feel this way. 
guess what? So does everybody. Everybody feels this way. And so it's okay. You know, um, your boss, Mike, and I, we write about this concept of being unfinished and uh, of that being a good thing to know you've never arrived and, and I'm sorry, you never will. Like there is no point where you're ever going to feel like I'm the perfect person for this job. And that's a good thing, right? Because we should all embrace the fact that we're unfinished and in this constant iterative process in our personal life, professional life, our human life, whatever. Beautiful. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, Nick, being successful, as you know, includes being on top of your productivity, but this means different things to different people. How does Nick get organized to ensure that you get to do what you need to do and still have a fructiferous life? Um, okay, Efrain, I'm going to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start serious. Um, when I first moved into school leadership, I was spending so much time at work, trying to be the first one there and the last one to leave, trying to go to all the evening activities and squeeze in the family things. Um, one of the things I neglected was my physical health and going to the doctor, going to the dentist. Um, there was a period, I'm embarrassed to say how long, where I never went to a dentist. And um, when I became a superintendent, Sarah Bocek, who um, is an attorney in Illinois now, back then she was the um, kind of on-staff attorney for IASA. She would write in every one of our superintendent contracts that we were mandated to get a physical every year as a, as a part of our job. And so if you read basically any superintendent in the state of Illinois, if you read their employment contract, we're now required to get a physical every year. And Sarah and I have talked about why she did that, about self-care and making sure people um, you know, took care of those things. We've had three superintendents in the state of Illinois die this year. And that's awful and it's scary. And um, it's really reinforced to me the importance of, of like medical self-care, of going in and, and taking care of yourself um, in those ways, whatever, whatever that means to you. Um, but this podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get back to the episode. Here's some of the things. When you talk about productivity, I've learned that if I want to exercise and be physically healthy, I have to do it in the mornings, right? So I, I can get up early and I can go in and I can work out and that takes away no time from my family. I happen to work in a high school district, so I have fitness centers in the building. I have showers. <laughs> it doesn't even cost me anything. I just have to go and do it. But <clears throat> if I do that after work, that means I'm missing school activities or family activities. So the more, it has to be the morning for me. Um, I got my doctorate very early in my life. Um, I, I finished my master's. And the same month that I finished my master's, my wife had our first child. In that same month, we bought a new house and I started my doctorate. And by the time I finished my doctorate, you know, we have a family of four <clears throat> and, and my kids never missed me. Now, not fair to my wife. She shouldered a lot of that um, diaper changing and, and the young babies. But I talked to a lot of people who want to go back for their doctorate and their kids are now teenagers. And it's so hard because of all the time it takes. 
So a huge productivity piece for me was getting my doctorate as quick as I could so that it didn't impact my role as a, as a father, as my kids were growing up. Um, I, you know, little things I try to do, um, you know, I, I try to unsubscribe from as many garbage emails as I can to, to keep the noise down. Um, I try to leave most days with my inbox and my voicemails as close to, uh, cleaned out as possible so that I'm not always thinking about those things when I get home. Um, and those hopefully let me prioritize my time when I'm home with my family. You know, my wife will tell you, I'm not always good at it. I'm not always good at putting my phone down and being present, but the little things I try to do, um, so that I can, I can keep the plates spinning on all fronts. Um, follow question. Okay. So, um, let's think about, uh, the health component, uh, the importance of health. Um, what has to improve in terms of the culture that superintendents, principals, and other leaders, uh, to ensure that this is embedded? Uh, what should be that routine in the morning? What is the routine that you do? uh, to make sure that you keep your health, uh, your physical health up to shape. I think it's a very, it's a very good question. It's a very unique question to everyone because you know, we all have different goals. We all have different needs. Sometimes it's about exercise. Sometimes it's about food. Sometimes it's about mental health. Um, so I think it starts with who are you talking to? Who are you, what, who are you going to for a doctor um, to make sure you know what you need? Are you getting regular blood tests to know, yeah, your potassium is kind of high, your triglycerides need to go down. So to, to own that and understand it, there's so many people who just don't even, don't even go in to understand what's going on with them. Um, the, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's so personal to everybody. And so for me, I love playing basketball on Friday mornings with our teachers. It's some of the best fun and exercise and relationship building. And I think it, it's a, allowed me to humanize myself to a bunch of the folks I work with because for one hour every Friday, I'm not their superintendent. I'm the guy that's guarding them on the basketball court. Um, and it, even if I'm, even if I'm out, like I had a yesterday, today, Saturday, yesterday was Friday. Um, I had an 8.30 meeting down in Oak Brook, um, but I still drove into work to play basketball at 6 a.m. just so I could see the guys and, and play basketball and then shower, and then I drove to my meeting. I could have I slept in and gone, to, um, and gone straight to that meeting, but it's important to me to go do that. Uh, one of the tricks I use personally, and this is kind of goofy, is sometimes when I can feel myself getting far away from working out and I, I'm making excuses or not doing it, I'll start packing my bag and putting all my work things in my car uh, the night before. And then when I wake up, I have no choice but to get up and go get in the car because everything I need is already out there. Uh, and it forces me to go in and exercise. And so um, get on the elliptical, do whatever. So yeah, that, those, that's what I do, but it's super personal. Yeah. Do you, when you get in the elliptical and stuff, do you listen to music, to books, do you listen to nothing? Um, I, 
I'll pick TV shows uh, on Netflix. Um, it's a great maybe idea. That my wife doesn't have an interest in watching with me. And then I'll watch those. And that's actually a piece too, because if I get into a good show or if I'm into a good podcast and I want to hear the next episode or watch the next episode, that's a driver for me to get there. And the exercise mm. is happening kind of in the background. Beautiful. Importance of exercise. Thank you so much. Let's go back to when you had to sit down and write letters, emails to your staff, your, your community, uh, did you just go and write it? Do you think about, do you brainstorm? Uh, what advice do you have? Um, I'm very careful when it comes to those kind of communications, especially mass communications. Uh, <clears throat> there, there, there are little ways I communicate and big ways I communicate. One of the things I do is I write a birthday card to every employee every year. And so um, I'll, I'll sit down and, and bring them home for the next month. And I've got the list of all the birthdays, but it's, it's one way that I can have a handwritten note to every employee in the district, teacher, administrator, food service, board of education, maintenance, custodial. It's about 700 people. So I write about 700 birthday cards a year. And that's personal for me to them. Um, if I'm going to write a mass communication, I have a tool that I use. I call it info and updates. So that's always the subject line. If the staff is going to get an email from me, it's called info and updates so they can see it and know it. Um, and I don't use that terribly often, maybe every couple of weeks, sometimes once a month, but it's a way for the superintendent them to know, okay, Nick is saying something directly to us. During COVID, my communication switched to video. How am I making a decision about masks? What metrics are we following to know what's safe or not safe? And so I wanted them when they're all at home to give them this little bit of, of contact back with me. And so I would record, I'd write a script and I would record a YouTube video and send the link out. And then I would attach the script to the email. If you're sick of looking at my face, you can go ahead and read the script. But if you wanna hear from me and you can get the tone of my voice and understand <clears throat> we're doing these things. Let's be completely transparent. <clears throat> and so, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I reread those things 10, 15 times because I'm very nervous that I'm going to have a typo or miss a word or, or, or put something out or I'll have other people read them. You know, that's something that Mike and I do for each other pretty often is we'll read each other's communications and give advice. Hey, maybe, maybe don't say it this way. That comes off a little harsh. Uh, try this. And so having that accountability partner um, and friendship uh, to bounce those things off of, again, it's like tie this back to the imposter syndrome. Every email I write, I'm nervous that I'm going to say something wrong or whatever. So I lean into it humbly and say, Mike, would you look at this? Talk to my assistant. Laura, would you, would you read this before I send it out? That's the imposter syndrome attacked in a humble way to, to mm. lean into very great advice. Thank you so much. Okay. So in terms of your calendar, uh, how do you address the calendar issue? Do you have an assistant? And if, uh, what advice do you have responding in terms of when someone becomes a superintendent for the first time, what changes in terms of those, uh, calendaring issues? Um, 
Yeah, I, my assistant, Laura, has control of my calendar. And so she can put appointments on. Um, I can say, hey, I need to meet with so-and-so. Can you reach out and just find a spot on the calendar? And she'll do that. Um, most of the things on my calendar are events that are either recurring meetings or obligations or things that I put on there myself. The, uh, there's a frustrating part to my calendar. When you give up control and let others put appointments on there for you, your days start to fill up whether you want them to or not. And um, if you ever want to take a day off, it gets really hard because you have to look a week, two weeks, three weeks in advance to even find a day that you could take off. And so um, I've kind of learned to be okay with it. Um, I've learned to block things in advance if I thought potentially, you know, I'm going to take my child on a college visit or I've got a friend in town from that's going to be coming in town from out of town. And I want to block that because we might go to lunch together. <clears throat> so I've had to block those things far in advance. Um, but I'm much more protective of, you know, the evenings and the outside of school hours. And so if I'm going to go to school events, maybe I just pop in for 10, 15 minutes, make an appearance and then slide out instead of being there the whole time. Um, so creative ways, but yeah, it, Calendar is hard because it it fills up. There are a lot of, there are a lot of things all the time. And do you do uh, a list of things that you need to do? Do you um, have a list of bullets? Uh, how do you um, as a thing, as things come in and things that you need to do? Uh, how do you get organized to ensure everything gets done? Um, I. Uh, I'm kind of old school when it comes to that. I've got a notepad on my desk um, where if there's something that comes in my mind that I have to accomplish, I'll, I'll write it down on there, um, knowing that I have to cross it off at some point. Because sometimes those things come in and out of our minds so fast, I need to capture it and put it down there. But I keep a, those are kind of long-term things. I maintain a, a Google Doc, I call my, my big board, And there are things that I want to accomplish organizationally that might take me two or three years to get done, but I want to go back and revisit that. So I've got kind of my, my daily and I've got my long-term. <clears throat> I maintain a, a, a list of monthly board of education topics so that I know, oh, wait a minute, it's, uh, it's going to be February next month. All right, these are the things I have to accomplish with the school board on an annual basis. And so there's multiple places I go for my um, board topics, my daily tasks, my long-term tasks, but it's a system that works for me, right? So your, your system may look different, but you, you definitely need a system. Otherwise you're going to miss things. In fact, I mean, just for this, this weekend, I think I have a list with me of about six things that I want to get done between before Tuesday. And so I wrote those down, brought some stuff home with me. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. So at some point, Nick says, well, you know what? I do all this stuff, but I also want to write books. And I believe articles too. Uh, can you tell us about your practice? What inspired you to get there? What advice do you have for potential authors 
uh, out there that want to publish their own things um, to to move the needle in the right way. For sure. Um, in terms of articles, I, um, Mike and I have been professionally, you know, connected at the hip for for right, 10, 12 years now. <clears throat> and we've been involved at the state level and national level. And sometimes when you just get involved and get to know those people, they'll ask you to write things for them. Hey, can you write us an article about social media for the magazine? Sure, happy to do it. So a lot of those things aren't even things we necessarily wanted to do. It was, we were asked to do and we said, sure. Um, Mort Sherman, who is the um, assistant executive director at AASA. One day we were doing something with AASA and, and Mort said to Mike and I, you two should really write a book. Mike, Mike and I were like, yeah, maybe we should. Um, and then there were kind of a confluence of, of, of events and, and we just thought, let's try this. And that's when we wrote um, The Unlearning Leader. And I think we, we really found a fun partnership and companionship in the co-writing process because I wasn't just writing everything I wrote, he was reading and editing and everything he wrote, I was reading and editing. And so our two voices started to blend into one another. Um, mm -hmm. and it became just a fun project for us to do, um, in our downtime, <laughs> in our downtime. But, uh, the, the most recent book when we wrote the unfinished leader, that was our, um, that provided sanity for us during the pandemic. You know, when we were thrust into this role of being, you know, healthcare decision makers and talk about imposter syndrome. I had no idea. I mean, what, how would I ever know what I'm doing in, in that realm? But um, Mike and PJ and I found some comfort and some distraction from all of the craziness in just writing with one another, laughing at what Mike wrote and editing over it and him doing the same to me and PJ come in with this new perspective. Um, it was a really fun professional partnership for us. Beautiful. Let me let me ask you. Um, um, what did you uh, learn by the second book that you didn't know by the first? Um, I, I think the second time around. So our second book was Student Voice, and I I, I think we brought more structure to our approach. We were a little haphazard the first time. <clears throat> and so the second time we created a, a, a structure of Google folders and different docs mm -hmm. for each chapter as we developed, knowing what the publishers wanted. Um, the first time we just kind of wrote it and then we had to go backwards and undo it and say, and, and approach it to how we submit it and how it needs to be formatted and, and all these things. So we were a lot more structured once the having a structure in place of how you're going to attack the thing allows you mm -hmm. to be more free in your creativity because you're not drowning in all the details. It's kind of like <clears throat> a piece of advice somebody gave me for writing a dissertation was as you read articles and do your research at your doctorate level to constantly build your bibliography as you go. Everything you read, every time you read an article or read a book, add it to your bibliography, whether or not you're going to use it and then tag it with some keywords or stories or anecdotes that you know you could tie back to. Because then when it comes time to actually do your bibliography or annotate it, like, it's already done. And versus trying to recreate it 
on the back end. If you can have the structure in place, um, the creativity is a lot more fun. Wow, that's that's such a great advice. Um, add your biography as you go reading it. I did it the other way around. I found the bibliography and then I started the reading, which made it much more daunting. Great piece of advice. Thank you so much. Nick, any other interests that you may have that uh, perhaps are away from the superintendency? <laughs> sure. I think anybody who knows me pretty well um, knows that I love craft beer. Like some people collect stamps or coins or baseball cards. Um, my favorite uh, beer is the next one that I haven't tried before. And so that's, it, it's been fun for me and, and actually reconnecting with some of my best friends from high school um, to, to share and try things and, and let that be part of our life together. Um, I, um, when I can, I love to be a, a pretty awful karaoke singer. Um, that's a, a fun pastime. I, I used to have a lot more when I was younger. <laughs> when I turned 40 years old, My wife and my kids bought me 40 pairs of fun socks. And then when you start wearing fun socks to work every day, people start buying you fun socks. And so I've got now two drawers full of, of, uh, of socks. I try to wear unique ones every day. And so little things like that. Um, I think we're getting to the point where in the next four or five years, my wife and I are going to become those empty nesters. You know, and we're talking about what do we want to do and who are we going to be as a couple again in that different next iteration of our life together. And so, you know, looking forward to what that's going to be in terms of travel and, and new experiences as well. How do you prepare for that? Because um, uh, you have four children, I have two children. And I was just uh, telling to my wife the other day as I was washing the dishes, he says, you know, there's going to be a time there's going to be less dishes to wash. And we are going to look back and say, oh, do you remember that time where the dishes were? <laughs> How do you prepare for that? Um, the conversation that she and I have about that is that you need to protect and maintain that relationship now so that that relationship is there when that time comes. And so um, she's really good about keeping me honest to make sure we go out on dates You know, maybe not every week, but every other week, a few times a month um, to where we go out, just the two of us. If that meant getting a babysitter or having a family member come over to be with the kids, it's getting easier now as our kids get older. Um, but um, there's going to come a point where the kids, you know, they get married and they move on or they do whatever they're going to do and they're not going to be here anymore. There's going to come a point where I'm not a superintendent anymore, right? All these things are temporary. What's going to maintain my relationship with my wife is going to be here after all that. And if I want it to be here, I got to protect it and nurture it now. Um, because, you know, if you start to dig into these things, high pressure jobs, the divorce rates are pretty high. And I, I don't want that. Right. And so why do I protect my time? Why do I work out in the morning? Why do I talk to my school board about evening obligations and the importance of my family? Because I want all of those things to be there when the, when the superintendent chapter of my life is over. And so it's, it's prioritization, I think right now. Let me ask you, um, what does your wife mean to you? 
Um, she is the glue uh, to this whole thing. She's, uh, <clears throat> you know, I was able to get my doctorate because of all the things she did. Um, when we had our second child, she was a, a elementary teacher. And when we had our second child, the cost of childcare and her salary pretty much merged. And so, you know, she made the decision to stay home. We made the decision for her to stay home with the kids. And our kids are very successful, very well adjusted. And in large part that has nothing to do with me, but the fact that their, their mother was in their life during those really formative years. Um, and so she's been very understanding, you know, think about you, you see all the, all the crazy adventures Mike and I get into the support that she's provided to make that possible, um, to understand what that means to our family and, you know, who we are and what we can be, but the glue, I mean, it, if, if not for that, everything else kind of falls apart and unravels around me. Beautiful. You're blessed, Nick. Okay, Nick, uh, this has been such a great conversation. Any last thoughts you would like to share with the listeners of the show? Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me. This is a, an honor and a blessing this morning. Um, I think I would just say, be thankful, give thanks to those around you. You know, it's fun being able to talk to my, about my family and my, my wife. Um, you know, like be thankful like for me, a huge thanks to, to Mike who, you know, we've become these kind of <laughs> collaborative work partner partners and, and people like Brent Clark at IASA and, and Dan Domich and now Dave Schuler and Mort Sherman at AASA who just have given us these cool opportunities. You know, you, you asked me about my, my mentors and everybody has those, or hopefully has those. Have we told them thank you? Have you reached out and shown gratitude? Um, because none of us do this stuff alone. And if you think you do, <laughs> you need to check yourself because you don't. <laughs> and so like, who are the people that have supported you and are continue to, and have you really shown that gratitude to them? Beautiful. Thank you so much, Nick. Uh, wow. Uh, I hope I feel so uplifted by listening to you and learning from you. I hope that you and your family have a fantastic Saturday. You do the same, my friend. Great to see you. The same. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Wisdom and Productivity, the podcast of Dr. Eparim Martinez. Chulu. And as a production, chill out. <laughs>